This episode of World Changing Ideas is brought to you by Verizon, the network America relies on. Okay, so we've looked at how methane and carbon dioxide can be converted into useful products. We also found out how recent chemical discoveries could make plastic degradation actually helpful. On today's episode, we're going to look at a solution to combating climate change that everybody seems to know about, but nobody is sure how to take on. And that's forest conservation. Because it's Earth Day in two days, we thought, what better way to celebrate than by talking about the most iconic symbol of the Earth, the tree. Trees are nature's first line of defense when it comes to fighting climate change because of their capacity to remove carbon from the atmosphere and store it. But global deforestation continues at an alarming rate. Just to give you a sense of how bad it is, each year over a five-year span, the world has lost a chunk of forest equivalent to the size of Iceland. I'm Talib Vizram, and you're listening to World Changing Ideas, where we investigate how leading innovators are solving our most challenging issues. This season, we'll be looking exclusively at climate change and what's being done to try and save the world. Deforestation, agriculture, and other land use changes are responsible for roughly 25% of global greenhouse gas emissions. Forests help keep carbon in, not to mention how important they are to maintaining biodiversity. We'll have to spend a future episode or several episodes, talking about the ways the interconnection between plants, animals, and fungi are beneficial to the fight against climate change. But on today's show, we're going to focus on two ways to help forests keep doing the work they need to do. One way is to maintain forests as they are, preserving them from being cut down. This practice can involve a complicated system of carbon credits, which has a messy history of confusing attempts and unintended consequences. Basically, the carbon offset model that was supposed to balance the ledger ended up giving polluters a free pass because they bought the carbon credits without drawing down their carbon emissions. Sound familiar? That's what we talked about a few episodes ago when we explained the moral hazard. We'll get more into carbon offsets later on, but right now we're going to find out about the growing field of forestry investment. And when we think about that scale of operation, there's just a lot, a lot of very pragmatic things that you have to consider, right? How much time is this going to take? How much land is this going to take? How many people? How much labor is this going to take? How much is all this going to cost? That's Yi Li. He's the VP of growth at Terraformation, a forest restoration startup that aims to speed up the reforesting process. Lee says the company's main focus is getting more trees in the ground. Understandably, there are a few hurdles, though. We think a lot about what are the factors that hold back uh, humanity from being able to achieve that. And we've identified four uh, major bottlenecks that we focus on. One is seed supply. The second is training and capacity building for forestry organizations to get more trained foresters out there. The third is carbon verification uh, technologies and carbon verification standards. Uh, and the fourth is early stage forest finance uh, funding to get new forests off the ground. There's a very wide variance in the costs of tree planting operations too. Lee explained that if you're throwing mangrove into a coastal water line and expecting it to grow, that operation can be done for single digit dollars per tree. 
Whereas some of the more labor-intensive approaches of digging a hole, mulching, and cultivating a seedling in a nursery to put into that hole can cost an insane amount more. And then multiplying out that by a trillion trees, which is the number of trees that would cover three billion acres, that's how you get to some of these really astronomical numbers. Having said that, right, like even like numbers like, you know, 1.2 trillion or, 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 or $10 trillion or $8 trillion, there's a variance, right, in the cost estimates for what this will require. But Lee said that if you think about the level of investment that the world collectively has put into other social assets, things like homes for people to live in, then it's not that much. We have collectively invested $120 trillion, right today, right now, assets under management, $120 trillion of commercial and consumer mortgage loans that are out there, right? Like assets that are already put out there today. And so if you think about it from that perspective, And the question then becomes, should the world, how willing should the world be to invest $1 trillion into this social asset called forestry to improve uh, environments, to create livelihoods for for the communities around those forests, and of course, to absorb enough carbon in order to stave off the worst aspects of climate change, right? So that's really the sort of relative decision kind of criteria that, that we would encourage the world to think about. In order to demonstrate to the world that reforestation is both a possible and a viable thing to do, even on the most degraded pieces of land, Terraformation created a large, fully off-grid, 100% solar-powered desalination system. This supplies sustainable fresh water to its pilot restoration project in northern Hawaii. The system produces 34,000 gallons of water per day, enough to support several thousand trees. We wouldn't want to plug in those efforts into like a fossil fuel, you know, power network, right? Uh, Rather, we wanted to be able to show the world that this can be done in an an entirely renewable, renewably powered way. But for the world to get a trillion trees in the ground by the end of this century, we're going to need more than just one startup's efforts. That's why Lee said Terraformation aims to serve as a model for other forestry enterprises. The way that we think about scale is very much geared towards like a multi-generational approach, right? And when you think about uh, a forest as something that takes 20 to 30 years to reach maturity, and actually depending on on the types of species and the the areas, it could be as much as 80 to 100 years, right? So these are clearly multi-generational projects that are gonna go well beyond the span of my own career or any, any one individual's career. This is going to be a huge, huge industry. If you look at the very largest employers on the planet today, right, companies like McDonald's or Walmart, those companies have gotten to around 2 million, 1.9 million, 2 million employees globally, right? We think that there's the opportunity for 10 or more new companies to get created in the next decade that will eventually be the size of a McDonald's or a Walmart. A big part of Terraformation's approach is to train the trainer. This means they can get a population of foresters prepared enough not only for their own proficiency, but also for future generations of foresters. They do this by arming foresters with open source materials like freely available libraries of videos, quizzes, and infield practitioner guides. Training is essential because Lee admits terraformation can't reforest the world on its own. If you think about like a trillion trees and the level of effort that it's gonna take to put these trees in the ground, a trained forester is going to put 2,000 to 4,000 trees in the ground per year, 
So take a trillion and divide by 2,000 or 4,000, you're still going to get hundreds of millions of person years of labor that are going to be required to put that in the ground. And, and divided by 10 over the next decade, that's still tens of millions of people. Terraformation is not in the business of saying like, okay, if you if you want a seed bank, we'll we'll sell you one, but you got to buy it from us, <laughs> right? That that that's that's the sort of give a man a fish <laughs> kind of model. Yeah, we know we view ourselves very much as trying to like propagate this this knowledge and really trying to help it spread beyond us. Staying in line with the paying it forward ethos, Terraformation has also set up a forestry fund with bankers without borders to allow small players into the market. The company wants to create the right mix of investors who can tolerate some risk to work with a fund manager who's willing to put money into early stage forestry projects and create a large enough portfolio of them. We would say there's a very direct parallel between the style of investing that was happening in tech companies 50 years ago versus what's happening today. Let's go 20 years back. If you're trying to start a web company 20 years ago, it is really hard, it's really expensive, right? Nobody would cut you a check to do that, right? It's a very risky thing, quote unquote. But today people start websites or you start like an app, you know, a gaming app company or something, right? As as like almost a de rigor, you know, expected, like, yeah, sure, that's a sort of normal thing to go do. That's a career path. If that becomes a thing that people consider when they think about what am I going to do for the next 20 years? How am I going to start a career, right? If starting a forest, starting a forest business actually becomes a default path, rather than move to a big city and work at Starbucks as your first job, how about go get together with some friends and start a forest? Like that's the, the effect that we need to see start to happen around the world. That's super evocative. When we come back, I'll talk with someone who developed a technology that would help preserve forests and actually make the carbon offsets market work. But first, a quick break. This episode of World Changing Ideas is brought to you by Verizon, the network you can rely on for your phone and for your home internet. Find the plan that's right for you at verizon.com. Now we're going to hear from a group that is pioneering the forest carbon marketplace. Through its high-resolution map of over 92 billion trees in the U.S., Natural Capital Exchange, or NCX, is connecting American landowners with carbon buyers. Unlike previous attempts to get the carbon credit industry going, NCX stands out because it's opening up access to carbon markets for the millions of landowners and communities that have the potential to create a massive carbon benefit by not cutting down trees. I chatted with NCX CEO and co-founder Zach Pariza and Chief Sustainability Officer Dr. Jennifer Jenkins to learn more. So generally, do smaller landowners kind of feel forced out of this kind of carbon credit market? Yeah, well, they just really haven't had access before. Up until now, the transaction costs for them to measure their forests so they could know how much carbon benefit they could actually bring to market, they were so high that it kept pretty much everyone but the largest landowners out of the market. It turns out that most of the forests, especially in the U.S., are owned by small landowners. So 
Now there's the opportunity for them to evaluate the potential to grow their forests longer and create the climate benefit that we all need. And I think if I could add, I mean, in addition to the costs that are typical of a traditional carbon project, which can be really hefty and substantial and do kind of price a lot of smaller landowners out of the market, many of those traditional programs require long-term commitments on the part of the landowner, you know, decades to like centuries, right? And so, or at least as much as a century. And so, you know, that's a difficult proposition for small landowners to make. They're essentially making a commitment on behalf of their ancestors. Many are unwilling to do that. It really ties their hands and limits their flexibility. In order to gauge which trees to cut and which to leave, NCX employs a philosophical approach. What would a landowner have done without these carbon offsets? So that's that's a concept that we call additionality, right? So the, the question is, um, how likely was that landowner to have arranged a harvest for their forest, you know, in the absence of a, of a carbon program? And it's it's important that the alternative, right, or the counterfactual would have been a harvest, right? Otherwise, the decision to not harvest might not actually be creating real climate impact. So we do have methods that we implement to and to assess the likelihood of a harvest before we offer the opportunity to the landowners who express interest in our program to assess the likelihood of their harvest and 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 quantify how much of the carbon on their land might have been at risk um, before we offer them the opportunity to delay that harvest. That's a, it's a critical concept. NCX relies on tech to carry out a lot of these decisions, including something called base map. It's a map of all of the forests in the United States. And that's really what uh, that, that's what drives this model. It allows us to look at every landowner, whether they're large or small, each of those properties, and evaluate what the timber value is and also how much carbon that landowner stands to add to the landscape by choosing not to cut. Really what we're doing is we're using satellite imagery and some ground measurements to assess the number, size, and species of every tree in the United States right now, and we're expanding globally. And so we we know how much carbon is there, but we're also looking at the economic likelihood of harvest, like Jen was saying, by evaluating what prices are being paid for timber, how close uh, land is to certain mills, extractive markets, and the like. And so we're literally looking acre by acre with this process to evaluate what the opportunity is for a landowner to harvest. And that's how we can figure out how much somebody might be paid to not cut trees, to sell not logs. Earlier on the show, we learned why carbon credits have not been the most helpful in curbing greenhouse gas emissions. Before our interview, I'd read about some of the criticisms of carbon offsetting. One main problem being that as beneficial as it may be, it's simply not as good as slashing carbon emissions in the first place. Some critics even say it might incentivize more creation of carbon. We have to change our economy. We need to move to a fully decarbonized economy. Quit pumping new CO2 into the atmosphere. It's also true that we need to remove carbon from the atmosphere as quickly as we can. And that with that transition, that massive transition that our society must go through, we need to make sure that that's a just transition, that we are reducing damage to society today and in the future. Offsets are sort of the on-ramp to that decarbonized economy. It is a pathway for us to actively remove carbon while we make the transition to electric tractors and electric cars and an entirely new energy infrastructure. It is a yes and proposition, not an either or. 
Part of democratizing the carbon market includes giving landowners more agency in determining the carbon value they can bring to the market. I wanted to know how NCX created a pricing structure that actually allows landowners to come up with the costs. They raise their hand and say, tell me how much carbon I could bring to market. We evaluate that satellite imagery, the stocks of trees that they have, and the likelihood that they'd harvest. We put that opportunity in front of them. For that landowner, they state the price that they would need to sell the option to harvest. And really for every landowner, there is a cost to growing trees beyond the economic maturity for the timber. But that differs from place to place and market to market. And so there is more expensive and less expensive carbon on the landscape from these different landowners. But we run a reverse auction. And in doing so, we can identify the landowners that have the potential to bring the most climate impact for the lowest cost to society. And that's sort of that ramp to the decarbonized economy that we were talking about. Through that process, uh, over this last year, uh, we've had over 2 million or I guess 3 million acres of property come onto the program and thousands of landowners. And so it's really exciting. That's uh, something new in this world. You know, I, I've seen a lot of these stories where companies just plant trees in random places in in the global south without kind of the without people okaying it and people are getting forced out of their lands so it seems to me what you're doing putting landowners in control is beneficial in that way is, is that fair to say yeah that's right and, and really for us it's about putting all of the benefits of forests uh, on the same economic footing as timber and helping landowners achieve their objectives many like turns out most landowners aren't excited about cutting trees down it's just that they have costs that they have to cover like taxes and so, yes, by providing information about wildlife, biodiversity, you know, water, fire risk reduction and, and, and carbon, and putting those on the same footing as timber, we're providing opportunities, new opportunities to landowners that they didn't have and an opportunity for society to price those benefits into the products and services that we consume. And that's, that's how we get the landscape of the future that we need, the environment of the future that we need. There is one other complicating factor that needs to be addressed, wildfires. Given the increased prevalence and risk they pose to communities in and around forests, NCX is looking into how to incorporate wildfire risk into its calculations. A couple of things that we have contemplated that are on our, you know, sort of agenda and, and plan for the future. One, one thing would be to offer the opportunity for something like uh, mitigating wildfire risk, right? So look at the, to use the base map data to assess the risk of wildfire in a given region, and then understand how might we proactively manage forests to mitigate that risk of catastrophic wildfire. It, you know, those, those are sort of off in the horizon, right? Things, opportunities like that could be potentially turned into a credit type. Right now we're focused on our our uh, original business of the, the harvest deferral and working forests, but certainly that's other things on the horizon. Yeah, and I'll just chime in there. That, so th that's like the exciting frontier to put all of those benefits in balance and to create those opportunities for landowners. So for a, you know, think of a landowner in California where it's very high fire risk and perhaps you could pay them to grow a more dense forest, but that denser forest also would have greater fire risk. And so perhaps the best sort of forward-looking use is actually to thin that forest, to create wood products, durable wood products that people need, uh, and to reduce 
the risk of catastrophic wildfire. And, you know, there are better forests, better places, you know, where growing forests longer and more densely for, for carbon is the best use or is the best, uh, best forward-looking use for that forest. And really that's what it's about. It's about uh, providing landowners more opportunities to change the way that they manage the forest to create more of the benefits that we need as a society. And some of those benefits are timber. Like all of us are calling in from, or talking here from houses that are built with materials from, many of which come from forests. We count on those, we rely on those as, uh, as a society, but we now recognize we need more carbon out of the atmosphere and held in these living forests. Uh, we also recognize that these forests provide lots of benefits for biodiversity. And so the point is to use these measurements to underpin markets in all of the values of forests and to make them more valuable alive than dead. Either by saving forests or replanting more, it looks like there's plenty of room for more companies to join in on the action. That's all for our show today. If you're a new listener, be sure to subscribe to World Changing Ideas wherever you find your podcasts. If you like this episode, leave us a rating and review on Spotify or Apple Podcasts. Today's episode was produced by Avery Miles. Fast Company podcasts are produced by Franz Bowen, Avery Miles, and Blake Odom. Editing and sound design by Nicholas Torres. Executive producer is Joshua Christensen. Editorial oversight from Deputy Editor Kate Davis and Senior VP of Entertainment Scott Meebus.